Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. You have your outline sheet. We're going to be referring to it this evening. I was talking to Lee and Pat just before coming to speak this evening, and I thought maybe I'll share a few thoughts that we had in private conversation during our prayer time this evening. Some of you followed and are rejoicing, I trust, as I am, in a law that was passed in the state of Texas this week uh, requiring that there be no abortion uh, if there's any fetal life demonstrated, and that happens at six weeks. And so people are now commonly calling it the six-week law. The Fifth Circuit of Appeals has refused to take up uh, the appeal, which means that's now the law in the state of Texas until the Supreme Court perhaps takes it up. Uh, which every day that that law exists allows uh, some to know the reprieve of the butchers that have done their uh, worst in our country for now these nearly 50 years. We need to pray that such laws will spread and that the Lord will be merciful upon us. If you're a watcher of the news, and I know many are, there are many of us who are scratching our heads right now. Of course, we don't see America in Bible prophecy other than to say we're an extension of that Western power, which in God's word is defined as Rome. So when people ask, well, where's, where's American Bible prophecy, Pastor? My, my answer would be exactly that, that we are an extension of Rome. Uh, you see it in the way our government operates. We have a, a Senate and we are, uh, we are Western in all of our ways. But it doesn't appear that America has a strong influence in the last days. It, The Bible has more of an influence coming from the north and coming from the east and even coming from the south than from the west. And the influence that we do have uh, for those students of Bible prophecy, it seems like Antichrist does represent some form of a Western alliance that tries to uh, protect Israel. Uh, Antichrist comes to Israel with peace after all. He's uh, made a peace treaty with Israel. All that to say, we live in a land that would be characterized by blood guiltiness. Psalm 51, David is speaking in the 14th verse, and he says in verse 14, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. David was specifically burdened, uh, having been uh, one who had taken the life of another. And Psalm 51 is a penitential psalm. He's, He's praying with a burdened heart. We ought to pray with burdened hearts as Americans uh, for our country. Uh, The things that we see uh, have causes behind them, and we have to trace back and say, for so long, being so without conscience regarding the unborn, it shouldn't surprise us to see other things that cause anyone to shake their head and say, where's the conscience of our leaders and where's the conscience of our country? I'll take you on a little tour quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I promise I won't be long with this. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there are characteristics of the last days which are categorized here and, char- and uh, described as perilous times. Note with me 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. In these perilous times, these last days, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters. How many things in the name of uh, international pursuit are really better categorized as covetousness. Covetousness, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, and that phrase there speaks of without 
a typical love for family, and then the word truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent fierce, despisers of those which are good, traitors. I think we're living in the last days, and I think we're seeing some of it in how we're conducting ourselves as a country in international affairs. We're truce breakers and traitors, and when the whole world stands back and says you can't trust the Americans, uh, they have reason to say that. We need to be praying for our country. And if you ask the question, well, how then do I learn to pray? Well, that leads us to where we are this evening. We're taking our Bibles and turning to Luke chapter 6. We learn to pray by following the footsteps of Jesus. We've noted that there are 15 prayers of Jesus that are found for us in the Gospels. Three are found in Matthew, four in Mark and John. Luke, where Jesus Christ's manhood is best described for us. It shouldn't surprise us that when he's being seen as the Son of Man, he's best seen in dependency through prayer. His prayer life is most shown to us in the Gospel of Luke. And so we're opening to Luke chapter 6. We've already looked at how the Lord was praying when he entered into public ministry, praying at the moment, at the time of his baptism. We've seen how the Lord prayed during times of busy activity and how when he returned to that place with which he was familiar, when he went home, he prayed. And I referenced a passage that's not typically discussed, but it's one that shows an interesting paradigm, and that is Amos chapter 5. It's as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned on his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. He got away from the lion, he got away from the bear, but when he went home, <laughs> his guard was down and that's where he was bitten. And so we need to be prayerful in our homes. But as we open our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, we find the Lord at prayer as he delegates responsibility. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. On many levels, Luke chapter 6 brings conviction. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 12. came to pass in those days that he, Christ, went out into a mountain to pray. He continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the betrayer. Luke 6 provides for us a wonderful example of the Savior. As he delegates responsibility, he's found in prayer. So let me ask you to think with me for a moment about the importance of delegation. Do you have a theology of delegation? Let's see if we can develop one, all right? Does God delegate, and if so, prove it? Does God delegate? What? The Trinity. The Trinity is an interesting picture of delegation, by the way. Uh, so I'll, I'll park there for just a moment. In the Trinity, when you study theology proper, there are various headings under theology proper, and one of the headings under theology proper is called the economy of the Trinity. So in the economy of the Trinity, you're, you're studying how the Trinity works and governs. And this is an interesting thing to consider. 
The Bible says the Father sent the Son, and Jesus then said in John 14 and 15, I will send the Spirit. So the Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. There's an operational government within the Trinity, right? Are the three equal? Yes, they're perfectly equal, and yet functionally, there are responsibilities, and even as was indicated, there's delegate, delegation that's demonstrated there. That's an important thing to see, by the way, because it really helps us to tap into an understanding of how the home is to be governed. While the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, that does not speak to anything less than an equality of soul and equality of worth. A man is worth what a woman is worth. They're same in soul worth. Just as Christ was the same as the Father in equality, and the Spirit the same as the Son in equality. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one, total equality. Even so in the home, the husband and the wife have equality of soul, and yet there's responsibility, headship, and submission does not take away equality. And the proof of that is in the Trinity. So we see delegation in the Trinity. I saw Larry's hand, I think. Yeah, in the garden. He gave responsibilities to Adam in the garden. And so overwhelmed by those responsibilities was David that in Psalm 8, he says, when I think about the heavens and all that you've created, David says, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou considerest him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. And then he says, and you've put under his feet all these things. So God delegates to David. Can you see other pictures of delegation in the pages of Scripture? So we have in the Trinity, we have in creation. Loy? Yes, the office is a bishop and deacon in the church. Uh, there's hierarchy that's being demonstrated, and yet there's equality of membership by way of uh, being able to have congregational government. Yes, Josh? Absolutely. Missions is a delegated responsibility, isn't it? No. Okay, so we pause there and we see it at so many different levels and we see it among the wise in the Bible. For instance, in 1 Kings, uh, when we study Solomon, you're going to read all the different, not all of them, but many of the different positions that uh, were delegated in the kingdom by Solomon. Somebody was in charge of the vittles for the table. Somebody was in charge of the chariots. Somebody was in charge of the treasury. Somebody was called the king's friend. All these delegated responsibilities. Now, all that to, to, to land the, the plane here for a minute. As I come to Luke chapter 6, Jesus is about to, from his disciples, call 12 who will be apostles. He spends all night in prayer. Because with delegation comes great responsibility, and these to whom he's going to delegate are going to turn the world upside down. So if we freeze frame this for just a minute and make some application for parents an application for those in the workplace. How much do you pray when you delegate? And even more convicting, how much do you delegate? Do you delegate responsibility with intent, intentionality? So maybe I can get some parents here. Let's, let's, let's pick on a preschool parent. Is there a preschool parent here tonight who'd say, recently I delegated this to my preschooler 
and I'm holding them responsible for it. Anyone? Don't all jump at once. You delegated anything to a preschooler lately? Yes. Betsy? Gwendolyn makes her own lunch. And how old is Gwendolyn? Four. I didn't hear the last there. Betsy, yet? Okay, older siblings help, but not mom. That's her responsibility. Well done, Betsy. You know, when you do that, it's not just taking a burden off of you, but it's being a godly mother. Failure to delegate is failure to represent one of the ways in, God, in which God works. Okay, how about an um, elementary age parent? Any delegation going on in the elementary age around here? Oh, Barfield, he's got his hand up. He's got him at every level. Go ahead, Matt. Lots of chores. Any in specific? I just love the way Matt goes over that. You know, he's so efficient. It's just a matter of it's a kid to do, a kid to do, a kid to do, a kid to do. They're, they're all nameless at this point in his house, but it's, it's all good. But that, that, that's true. It's interesting when Moses is concerned about the children of Israel going into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He speaks specifically and he says, and when you come into that land, where you didn't build the houses and you didn't plant the vines and you didn't plant the trees, then beware lest you forget the Lord your God. It's a really important thing for us to consider and consider it early and often with our children to delegate responsibility to them. And in the workplace, there's a type of leadership that's called martyr or slave. Are you familiar with that type of leadership? Those who study different styles of leadership. We'll talk about the autocratic leader and the democratic leader. And then they'll talk about the slave or the martyr. And the slave or the martyr is almost an irreplaceable asset in any situation. They're 23-hour-a-day employees. They can do it all efficiently and probably without equal anywhere. And one wonders how can anybody ever get along without them. But what people don't realize is if others did it with them, you get a whole lot more done. Failure to delegate often shows a lack of trust in others and an over-significance of self. Well, I can't let somebody else do that because, you know, it take me time to train them. I'm not that patient. And then after I train them, they're not going to be that good anyway. And it really makes the world shut down. And it also makes ministry shut down. So as I see the Lord here in prayer, I'm just going to develop another couple questions and, and we'll, we'll, we'll hasten on. We want to be very intentional as a church. Recently we launched again after COVID small groups. That's not just so Herb can have some time and others on the weekends rolling out tables and picking up chairs. The intentionality of that is to get people involved in ministry. To have many, many places I was talking to Ben this week, and he said there's something over 50 that are serving this year in the Adult Bible Fellowship staff, and others I know who are willing, and I'm thankful for that. But that's a great thing to praise the Lord for, because it really does follow after what the Lord does. He has 12 here that he gives authority to be his apostles, and as he does so, 
he's training them to turn the world upside down. Our Lord fashioned men in this way, and we need to as well. It's very important for us as a ministry across the board to really get used to encouraging others to participate. To really get used to saying, okay, I've been doing that for three years. Maybe I can be stretched to do something else. When we harbor in our positions for over much time, we can become comfort zone specialists. One other observation in Luke chapter 6 here, you notice there at the end of this particular section, verse 16, he called Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. Did he know that Judas would betray him? Yes, he did. So why did he bring him on board? He needed a traitor. You know, I'm going I'm to put it this way. He needed a traitor for us. So we start with, he did this because of the sovereignty of God in God's plan. This is, was prophesied. My friend with whom I eat bread, he's lifted up his heel against me, is in the Psalms. It's prophesied. So he is fulfilling the prophetic plan of a sovereign God. He's omniscient. But have you ever thought how many ways our Savior's friendship with Judas has encouraged your heart? You ever had a friendship go bad? Or somebody really stab you in the back? Let me apply it this way. Delegate to somebody and put some trust in them and see what happens. If you don't connect at that level, you'll never really appreciate Judas. But the Lord, in preparation for these 12, is spending time in prayer. And we ought to be Christians who are always ever so thankful, ever so grateful, and ever so humbled by opportunities that God gives to us. These 12 who entered into the ministry, unbeknownst to them, would ultimately have their names engraved in heavenly places, even as the foundation of the kingdom. No wonder Jesus spent all night in prayer. So when you're frustrated with a challenge that you can't do alone, don't just give it away. Give it away, but give it away prayerfully. Get others involved. Be one who follows after the pattern of the Savior. Just a practical thought, but here's another one. As we go to Matthew chapter 14 and discover the prayer life of the Savior, we find him facing a personal tragedy. And as he faces a personal tragedy, he faces that personal tragedy with prayer. What was the tragedy? His cousin, the one who baptized him, the one who said he must increase and I must decrease, the one who pointed his disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist's life has been taken from him. How old is John the Baptist when he dies? About the same age as Jesus when he died, right? 32, 33 years old, he's a young man. We read in verse 13, when Jesus heard of this, we can read in verse 11, his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, so you know where you are in the passage. His disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. And Jesus, when he heard of it, departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot even out of the cities. 
He's overcome with the news that he's just heard with regard to his cousin, his friend, his fellow servant, the greatest who's ever lived of all the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. He faces this personal tragedy. And I read that as the people chased after him, he commanded in verse 19 that the multitudes sit down on the grass. He took five loaves and two fishes and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke it and gave the loaves to the disciples. Verse 22, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. He needs some time away from the multitude to go before him unto the other side while he sent away the multitudes. When he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when evening was come, he was there alone. This is a time with a heavy heart that the Lord in tragedy as he meditates on the loss of John the Baptist. He's seeking some alone time, but he's not really getting a whole lot of it. The multitude is following after him. He doesn't forget the multitude in their needs, even when he's overwhelmed in his grief. He ministers to their needs, but he still ministers to his own. He ministers to his own alone in prayer. We are told, in fact, Kevin cited it this evening, to cast all our care upon him for he cares for us. I look in this passage and I see when his heart mourned the loss of a loved one, Jesus found the place of solace and the place of solace was the place of prayer. And when his heart was moved with compassion for those who were round about him, Yet, it says, and when evening his disciples came saying, this is a desert place, the time has passed, send the multitude away. Even in that situation where his heart was craving time alone with the Father. I sent a card today and I put on that card what I've often written. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. The God of all comfort, comfort you with the comfort whereby he comforts us so that you may in turn comfort others. There is a God of all comfort. And when we ask the question, how did Jesus give example for us in prayer? Well, when he faced personal tragedy, he spent time in prayer. He purposefully sought some alone time, and it wasn't easy. The multitude kept coming and kept coming. Go with me to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Just some brief sketches of the prayer life of the Savior There may be somebody here this evening who's still carrying a burden of grief and you haven't known healing yet. I talked to somebody recently who was about to make a very important lifelong decision and one of their dearest loved ones had died within just a couple of months. And so I said, listen, the wise will always say best not to make really, really, really important decisions when you're still grieving. And the person said, well, pastor, how do you know when you've gotten over grieving? I said, well, I'll be practical about it. When you go to church and you can get through a song service without crying, then you might be getting past grieving. But if you can't get through a song service or a sermon or a time alone in prayer without crying, you're still grieving. And the person I was talking to said, well, I guess I'm not there yet. I said, exactly. Be careful 
during times of grief, the time spent with the Lord is the only way strength can come. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. Jesus asked the question of his disciples, Whom say the people that I am? Whom say the people that I am? He's about to reveal some great mysteries to his disciples. They answering said, John the Baptist. Wait a minute, we need to back up. Because the beginning of verse 18 says, It came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him when he asked, Whom say people that I am? He looks up from his prayer He's about to go deep. (laughs) He's about to reveal to the disciples some things that they had never considered. They answered, some say John the Baptist, and some say Elias, and others say you're one of the prophets that's risen. And he said, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. He straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, the Son of Man must suffer. He reveals to them the mystery of his person in this passage. Whom say ye that I am? And Peter gives the right answer. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the anointed one, the Mashiach of the Old Testament. And the Lord and Savior is going to say to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Peter. Peter is getting the blessing of the mystery of his person. And he's about to give the mystery of his death, his passion. And as he does so, he's already been praying For he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, verse 22, and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain. Is this what the disciples expected? No. They expected to be one on the right hand and one on the left hand when he brought in the kingdom. Even after the resurrection, in the book of Acts, the first chapters, they're still inquiring about the kingdom. But the Lord here is revealing the crucifixion. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It's not about sitting upon a throne. It's about taking up a cross. For whoever will save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will save it. My mother taught middle school Sunday school class. I remember when I was a very mature and wise 10th or 11th grader. She came home from teaching Sunday school one Sunday morning and she was disappointed and confused and laughing all at once. And you'd have to know my mom to understand. She was a mixture of emotions. She said, I've had a fellow in Sunday school class for the last two years that sleeps through most classes and has never asked any question ever. And today he raised his hand. She said, I was so excited. Here this young man is finally plugging in. And she said, yes, what's your question? And he had a new Bible, and it was a new Bible that had pictures in it. You've seen those kind of Bibles that have pictures of the Holy Land, you know, the Mount, Mount Carmel and various places. So these were photograph pictures, not, you know, art, art drawings. These were photograph pictures. And in one of the photographs of one of the locations there in the Holy Land, there were some telephone wires. And the middle school student said, Mrs. Phelps, is this the Holy Land? And she said, yes, it looks like a picture of the Holy Land. I didn't know there were telephones when Jesus was alive. She shook her head and she said, I don't think I'm getting through to that young man. (laughs) You ever been frustrated trying to get through to your kids? (laughs) Don't all say yes at once. 
The Lord had disciples who were pretty thick-headed. And what's the model? Before he talks to them of his divinity, and before he talks to them of his passion, he talks to the Father. There are some mysteries that can never be explained until first we spend time with the only one who can reveal the mysteries to us. When he prepared for a sacrificial destiny, we find him spending time in prayer. It came to pass about eight days after these things, he took Peter and James and John, verse 28, he went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered and his raiment was white and glistering. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias. Verse 29, his garment was altered. There are two different Greek words for something different. We get one word orthodox and the other word heterodox. Here it's the word heterodox or heteros in verse 29. His countenance was altogether different. It was not the countenance of a person who you would recognize as a human being on earth. No, his, he's glistening and white. He was praying And what's the conversation? Well, they appeared to him in glory to speak, verse 31, of his decease, which he would soon accomplish in Jerusalem. As the Lord prepares for his sacrificial destiny, he prepares in prayer. Don't forget that the Mount of Transfiguration was a prayer meeting first. The highest pinnacle that these three disciples would ever share with the Savior started out as a prayer meeting. But it was a prayer meeting specifically because the Lord himself was now preparing for the hour of his death. I read an article recently and it talked about an esteemed professor that uh, I had when I was a college student. His name was Dr. Panosian. Dr. Panosian taught history of civilization for many, many years, I think 54 years. And he used to come into class a very booming bass voice and he'd put on the overhead projector, so this dates you right. He put on the overhead projector how to spell his name, P-A-N-O-S-I-N. And then he would put an emphasis over the O. He'd say, my name is Panosian, with an accent on the rather obvious syllable. He had a big old nose, Panosian. Somebody went to Dr. Panosian, and this is what the article said, because this young man's father was thinking about or had become a tax evader thinking that the government shouldn't have the right to charge income tax and other such taxes. And the young student was so taken with his father's position, after all, who wouldn't be taken with the thought of never paying taxes, right? That he thought, before I do this, I think I'm going to go talk to Dr. Panosian, because Dr. Panosian knows a lot about civics and government. And so he went into Dr. Panosian's office and said, hey, uh, been thinking about this no tax position. What do you think? And as the article shared, Dr. Panosian looked out the window for a little while, and they looked back at the student, and he said, young man, has it ever crossed your mind that one day you will die? And after your death, people will look back on your life, and they will remember certain decisions that you make. As you seek to make this decision, Ask yourself the question, 
Do I want my life to be remembered for this? The student left the office and did not become a tax evader. He thought, no, I don't think I want to be remembered for this. Has it crossed your mind that one day you will die? And when it does, it will motivate you if you're filled with the Spirit to pray. The Lord is thinking about His passion. He's thinking about His death. He's on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's just revealed to His disciples the horrendous nature of His sacrificial death for our sins. And He's on the mountain praying when Moses and Elias come to talk to Him about His death. One of the greatest blessings we can have as believers is the joy of praying with one another when death is approaching. My dad, when he was in the hospital, unable to read, not hearing well enough to really get much out of TV, couldn't manipulate the remote anyway, the nurse came in and said, what are you doing sitting here all day? You want me to turn the television on? My dad said, no, I've got plenty to do. She said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got scripture that I've meditated and memorized and I'm meditating on and I'm praying for a lot of different people, so I've got plenty to do. Folks, the Lord modeled that, didn't he? As he was thinking about his impending death, he was praying. And then he's rejoicing in prayer when others are victorious. Come over here to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we'll close here this evening. Luke chapter 10, we begin in verse 17. The 70 returned again with joy. Oh, wait a minute. That's delegation again, isn't it? The 70 returned again. I've often thought about this passage, the 70. He sent the 70 out two by two into various villages and cities to preach. I don't know about you, but I mean, if, if James and Andrew were putting up a bulletin saying that they were going to be doing some tent preaching, you know, down there at Gadara or over in Magdala, I don't know. I'd probably be one of those guys saying, I'm going to wait till Jesus comes and preaches. I hear he's really a good preacher, but he's got these 70 people that are running everywhere preaching. I don't know how much they are. Uh, well, the Lord sent them out. And it says, he said unto them, I beheld Satan. They came back, by the way, returned with joy, verse 17, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said to them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Wow! (laughs) They're encouraged because they've seen spiritual power that they never knew. And Jesus accelerates the compliment, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. What's this prayer? This is the Lord's prayer of rejoicing. We have a high priest who intercedes for us. And often when we think about his intercessory work, we think that he brings our trials and our tribulations and our sins and our woes to the mercy seat. True! But he also brings our victories. Here, 
he's bringing the victory of, of the disciples. For many Christians, you see, it's easy to weep with those who weep, but difficult to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're called to do both. There's great joy to be found in celebrating the victories of others. So I ask you this evening, what lessons from the Lord's prayer life are you learning? What challenges can you find? And the answer, of course, is so many that our lives will never wear out with considering the beauty of the one who left us an example that we would follow in his steps. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindy.org or check us out on Facebook. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.